back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Today we're going to be in verses 19 through 21. It's only three verses, which makes it seem short, but there's a lot here, and we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. Before I go into the scripture, I want to share kind of a little story. We're going to have a few stories tonight. But um, we only have one week left of 2 Corinthians. And so I've been thinking a lot and praying a lot about what we're going to do next. And I remember the first time I ever taught, preached, spoke, whatever you want to call it, at a church service. It was when I was working as a, a chaplain in a nonprofit program way back in 2009, I think it was. And I remember I called my uncle Steve. He's like my former uncle-in-law, if you want to get technical about it. But Steve was a Greek Orthodox priest, and I love him. He's awesome. And I called him and I said, Uncle Steve, how do you know what to preach about? And he says, you talk about whatever God's put on your heart. You talk about whatever God has revealed to you. You talk about whatever you've learned or whatever uh, you've experienced or whatever has changed your life. Pass it on so you can change someone else's life. And so when I was thinking about what we're going to do next, I was thinking about what I've learned and what's really been on my heart lately. And what it is, is loving your neighbor. It's, it's accountability, it's brotherhood, it's about all the things that, that I think are hurting right now. And so when I looked at the scripture, it surprised me and it kind of, I don't know, impressed me that the timing worked out pretty well because Paul talks a bit about accountability and brotherhood in this short little pericope as we called it in school. And so now I'll get into it. 2 Corinthians 12, 19 through 21. Paul says, perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, we tell you this as Christ's servants and with God as our witness. Every, <clears throat> excuse me, everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find and you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence, and I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. Pretty harsh. If we take it verse by verse like we normally do, and we go to verse 19, Paul starts off by saying, perhaps... You think that we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, we tell you this as Christ's servants and with God as our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. So remember, Paul just got through boasting. The word boasting means to bring glory to. So Paul just got through bringing glory to himself. He did this to, to, to show that he was a true apostle and really was of God compared to the false prophets that were there and that it caused this division in the church. And so Paul is saying, hey, perhaps you think I'm saying this just to defend myself because I'm trying to make myself seem as good, if not better than Bob, we called him Bob, you know, the, the bad prophets or the, the you know, false apostles. He's saying, I didn't say this. I'm not saying this just to defend myself. No, I'm telling you this, all this information about who he is, about what he suffered, about suffering in general, about what a real prophet is called to do, about his life and his calling and the fruit of his work versus Bob and the false prophets and their money and their influence and their power and their, their ability to speak well. He's saying, 
I tell you this as Christ's servant and with God as my witness. So he's saying, I'm not telling you this just to boast or just to bring glory to myself. I'm telling you this because this is what God wants you to know. I'm telling you this so you can see what, what I do versus what they do. And God is my witness that what I'm, what I'm telling you is true. What I'm telling you is accurate. What I'm telling you is right. And then most importantly, he says, everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. So all this boasting, all this talking, all this stuff we've gone through for the past few weeks, all this conflict, he's saying, everything I've been telling you, everything I've been calling you on, everything I've been warning you about is to strengthen you. Paul's not saying these things for his benefit, but everything that he's done up to this point has been to build up the people of the church in Corinth. Paul's saying, as he's getting ready to sign off this letter, I've been telling you all this not for my benefit, not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can look good, but to strengthen you. In verse 20, he says, for I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Does anybody think we have this going on today? Raise your hand. I think if you turn on the television, CNN, Fox News, the nightly news, whatever it is, you're going to see jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip. You can turn on reality TV and the Real Housewives, you know, any of these game shows, any of these cooking shows, you know, any of these things. The, the thing that makes entertainment is what? Conflict. The thing that sells is typically conflict. Paul's saying that despite the good news that he's received about the progress the church in Corinth had made, despite the fact that the false teachers are gone, he's not sure it's going to last. He's not sure it's going to last because he knows what these people are capable of. He's seen the way that they behave. He understands what they've done in the past. So he's saying, I'm not sure that when I come back on this next visit, I'm going to be happy. I'm not sure when I come back that I'm going to like what I find. And if this stuff is going on, you're not going to like my response. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul was saying, don't make me come back there. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And he's saying, now I'm afraid that when I get back, now that I've heard this good news from Titus that things are better, I'm excited and I'm happy, but I'm afraid that when I come back, it's gonna, it's gonna, you, got, you guys are going to fall back in your old ways. You guys are going to go back to your old tricks. He's concerned that they'll go back to the world or the worldly ways and he'll find these negative things. But he's also saying that you won't like what you see as my response. Remember a couple weeks ago, he said, I'm not going to come back gently. I'm going to come back and I'm going to be powerful and forceful and we're going to call you under the carpet and all those things from chapter, uh, I think it was 11 or chapter 10. Does anybody here worry that people you know in the church or a church in particular or worry about yourself that you might fall back into your old ways, that you might fall back into your old tricks? Are you ever afraid or have you ever done something that's the old you? Even though you profess to be this new creation, even though you profess to be this new person and you, you're living this life in Christ, but sometimes you fall back to the old ways. You know what we call it in my old church? They call it backsliding. A falling away period. Walked away, lost his way. It happens. 
It's happened to everybody in this room, I promise you. At some point you said, I'm doing this, I'm living for the Lord. And a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years later, you found yourself doing something very unlordlike. Verse 21, yes, I'm afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. If you know the history of the Corinthian church, you know that sex was a big issue. And we talked about that in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of sexual immorality going on. A lot of their habits with their previous religion and the false gods that they worshipped before Paul brought Christianity to them involved uh, prostitution as a way of, of worship. Involved a lot of different questionable or, or really immoral sex practices. And so he's saying, I'm afraid you haven't given up those old ways. I'm afraid you haven't repented of your impurity or your sexual immorality and your eagerness for lustful pleasure. And when he says, God's going to humble me in your presence, that word also means humiliate me. To be brought low is another translation for that word. What does it mean that Paul says, God will bring me low? God will humiliate me. God will humble me in your presence. I read it, and from what I gathered, Paul is saying, I've taught you the right way. I've walked with you, I've shown you the way to walk, and I believe because I'm just as good as these false prophets, because I walk with the Lord, because I'm called to do these things, because I am who God has called me to be, and I've proven it to you in my letter, I've reminded you of the suffering I've endured, I've reminded you of the change that I've made, I've reminded you of the promises that God has given me, I've reminded you of the visions that I saw, i reminded you of all these things that say I am as great, if not greater than these chumps that just came in and divided the church but if I come back and you guys are doing your old tricks that's going to be humiliating for me that's going to humble me and drop me to my knees what Paul is saying is if you guys go back to your old ways that's going to bring me low that's going to hurt me that's going to cause me pain and grief and embarrassment and suffering and and, and it's just going to be a terrible situation so why is Paul so distraught and so desperate to see the change, to see lasting change in the people in Corinth. Anybody? He founded the church, yeah. He planted that church. He spent 18 months there. He loves these people. It's compassion. It's love. What Paul wanted for his church or the church in Corinth, what he wanted for all the churches he planted is what we want for this church. We want to see you grow in the Lord. We want to see you grow. We want to see you mature. We want to see your walk, a, a, a stable, mature, God-glorifying walk. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He said, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church of Laodicea. And for many other believers who have never met me personally, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ Jesus himself. In him, can we get on the screen? In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says he's agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. 
and for the many believers who he has never even met. Paul says he's agonizing for the people he hasn't even seen before. People that he's never even been in the same room. Why? Anybody? Same thing, love, compassion. He has a responsibility. But what is he talking about? He wants two things, the same two things we want. Our vision statement here is only four words, genuine faith, genuine community. Paul wants him to have a genuine faith, and he wants him to have genuine community. So he's got this love. He's got this compassion. He's got this desire. But what he also wants is accountability. Paul was in a leadership position. Mom just said he planted the church. Yes, he planted the church. He was a leader. But as we discussed in the past, being a pastor doesn't make you any more or less special. It's just a different gift. There's some responsibility there. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. So there's responsibility there when it comes to being a leader, but I don't think that was his motivation. I think his motivation is because he has invested in the lives of these people. 18 months is a long time. This is small church, probably house church, Probably, I mean, there's no internet. <laughs> there's no TV. These guys are sharing meals together. They're living life together. He's working as a tent maker. And, you know, these guys are all just living life. Imagine if somebody moved into your, your house for 18 months. And then he left. Like a foreign exchange student or a roommate. Anybody have a roommate? You keep touch with your roommates? Even if you don't see him, you still want him to do well? You check in with them to see, hey, how are you guys holding up? You good? Right? I posted this thing on Instagram how what you good can mean all these different things, right? You good? We check in every once in a while. Hey, man, how you doing? You good? He's checking in. And he's saying, I don't want you to go back to your old ways. Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He said, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives as well. What does that say? That says that Paul wasn't detached. He didn't come in, preach the word, chuck a deuce, and walk out. He wasn't just, you know, I've heard, and I'm not saying this is bad necessarily, but I've heard of pastors at other churches, larger churches, that go to the green room and prepare. I don't talk to anybody before the service. And then they end the service, and they go and prepare for the next service, right? <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. Not saying that's a bad thing, because I don't know how those guys operate, but I love our 5 o'clock prayer. I love being able to check in with everybody and see what's going on in your life. What's happening that's good? What's happening that's bad? Let's pray for you. But to do that in an effective way, you have to know the person, and you have to allow yourself to be known as well. You have to share your life. Just like you share the gospel, you also have to share your life. These are his friends. These are his brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, but these are his friends. So my question for you today is, do you feel that way about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you feel that way about the people sitting to your left or your right or in front of you or behind you? And we're a pretty tight-knit group, but let me ask you this way. When you see somebody really messing up, when you see somebody who's really struggling, what is your responsibility to that person? What are you supposed to do? 
Are you supposed to say something? Do something? Another way to ask that question is, am I my brother's keeper? And if you're like Shane, who told me the story before service, who said that phrase before he ever read it in the Bible, if you don't know where that phrase comes from, it's Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. This is Adam and Eve. They had two children, Cain and Abel. And Cain was jealous of Abel. So here's how it goes. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Other translation, am I my brother's keeper? Cain saying, hey, am I keeping track of him? It wasn't my day to watch him, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Because we're responsible for one another. That phrase right there, one another, shows up over and over and over and over in the New Testament. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Bear one another's burdens. Why? Why are we constantly encouraged to do these things for one another? Because when you become a Christian, when you become a Christ follower, when you make that decision to follow Christ, you become a part of a spiritual family. And that family has a responsibility to love and to care for each other. I'm going to say that again. When you make that decision to follow Christ, you become part of a spiritual family. People like to focus on, I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Yes, you are a new creation and you have some new responsibilities. Part of that responsibility is to love and care for your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? Greatest commandment. Matthew 22, I'm jumping around a lot, but Matthew 22, 36 through 40. The Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these experts were trying to trick Jesus and so they asked him this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And if you don't understand how they were going to trick him, they're asking him to see what he values most. And whatever he says, they're going to say, well, what about this? Whatever he says, well, I think it's, you know, uh, honor your father and your mother. Oh, really? What about yada, 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 right? They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to ask him, well, you got to pick one. So which one is the greatest? So it starts off again. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But he continues, he says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What Jesus did there is he summed up all ten commandments in two. The first, what is it, James, six? Four, there's six and four. The first group is all about God. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second group is all about how you interact with your neighbor. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not put, bear false witness, do not covet. We got two sets of rules, how we interact with God and the second part is how we interact with each other. You have a responsibility as a follower of Christ on how you interact with each other. 
A lot of times we focus on how we interact with God, and yes, that's important, but we also have to think about how we interact with each other. We can't love our neighbors as ourselves if we don't believe that our neighbor has the same value as we do. I'm going to say that again because going back to the beginning, as I was thinking about what to teach, as I was thinking about what to talk about next after 2 Corinthians, I think about the things that give me pause. I think about the things that cause me pain or that make me worry or make me cry out to the Lord, and I see the pain and the fear and the suffering and some of the, the, the frustration. I have a friend, her mom just passed, and she told me on Facebook, she's like, Chris, I'm really struggling with faith. And she's a Jewish woman. Her name is Hava. And I said, Hava, what do you mean? And she says, well, I just don't know how God could allow a, good, a, a bad thing like this to happen to a good person. We've heard that a million times before, right, Gene? <laughs> right? How could something bad happen to a good person? And I explained to her, I said, look, you have to understand that we live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that is not God's design. This is not what God wanted for us. We messed that up. And just like our professor Bill told us, it's not like if you imagine, think of a problem. Pick any problem, homelessness. It's not that we don't have enough money to house people. It's not that we don't have enough buildings to house people. It's not that we don't have enough money to build housing for people. It's the people that have the money are stingy. The earth can yield enough food to feed everybody, but we have people that are charging folks for water. So when you hear these things, and I know I get on my social justice kick sometimes, but you hear these injustices, you hear these problems, whether it's homelessness, whether it's hunger, whether it's access to clean water, whatever it is, the problem lies not in God's design, not in God's plan, but it's how we see each other, how we interact with each other and how we value each other that changes how we treat each other. Let me explain. You have to find yourself in your neighbor to love them as yourself. I can't love my neighbor if I don't identify with that neighbor. I can't love that neighbor if I don't have empathy for that neighbor, if I can't see his point of view or feel his pain or walk a mile in his shoes. I have to understand my neighbor's struggle so that I can support him or her. See, the problem nowadays is we say, uh, not my problem. I don't understand what he's going through. I don't know what he's complaining about. You watch the news and go, wow, they're marching again. What are they marching about? Okay, maybe you need to put yourself in their shoes. I'm going to tell you a quick story. <clears throat> when I was in junior high school, I wanted to be cool. Bad. <laughs> I was never cool. So my mom never bought me Air Jordan. My mom never bought me the coolest clothes. Not because we couldn't afford them. My mom would have got them for me if I needed them. She bought me the regular clothes, the Miller's Outpost jeans, right? The Target shirts, you know? The Foot Locker five for $20 t-shirt special, right? I didn't have the cross colors, which was hot back in the day. I didn't have the Jordans, that was hot back in the day too. I didn't have the baggy pants. Y'all remember Anchor Blue? Anchor Blue had like three sizes. They had the regular fit. They had the loose and they had the bad, right? And you know which ones I wanted. I wanted the bad, right? I'm like, Mama, I gotta get the baggy ones because everybody's got the baggy, sagging clothes. And Mama was like, You're not gonna look like that. You get the regular fit. I got those banker pants, right? Super tight. 
I would walk and it was like a duck or a penguin, you know? My parents, well, I couldn't breathe. And everybody said, yeah, I'm, I'm showing my age. <clears throat> but back in the, I'm not this old, but I remember because of my mom's music, back in the day there was a song called Skin Tight. Gene, you know that one? It was a funk song. I'm not gonna sing it. You know what I'm talking about? Skin tight, skin tight. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember that one? They used to sing that about me when I was walking through the poles because my pants were too tight. They were like, skin tight, skin tight. And I was like, yeah, you know, it was so bad that I tried to sag my pants by pulling my, my, my pants down by the pockets. My pants were so tight, I ripped off one of the pockets. When I was trying to sag my pants, I was like, I gotta get these down so I can be cool. <sighs> ripped them right off. Then I gotta go tell my mama I ripped my pants. What were you doing, son? Well, um, these skin tight pants were making me uncool, mom, right? You should have said defending the innocent. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's what I should have said. Anyhow, seventh grade, this is 1991, I think, 90 or 91. So, Try Call Quest is out, Leaders of the New School. That song scenario was hot. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. Remember that one? That was hot. You're probably about the second grade. That's one. You're one. <laughs> yeah. The starter jackets had just come out. And my boy Brandon Harrell had was UNLV starter jacket. UNLV was the truth. And I was like, yo, I need me a starter jacket. I finally got one senior year. But I wanted a starter jacket. I wanted to be cool. And so I hung out with all the cool kids. Now keep in mind, I grew up in Cerritos. Cerritos is about 60% Asian. And so I hung out with everybody in elementary school. But when I got to junior high, I hung out with the black kids. And it was all about rap. It was all about your clothes. It was all about your music and your shoes. And none of my shoes or clothes were cool. And I couldn't listen to the music with the bad words because my mama wouldn't buy it for me. I was so uncool. But what I would do is I would walk around with the black kids, and I was cool with my tight pants, right? And I'm like, and we would, we would pick on people. That seemed to be the thing to do. And if it wasn't talking to girls, smacking girls on their butt, which was horrible in hindsight, but like that was the game. Smack the girl and run away, right? But, yeah, it was. But if we weren't smacking the girls or practicing our latest rap lyrics, right, we would pick on the nerds. There were two nerds in particular that I used to pick on. One's name was Phil. The other one's name was Eric. Phil and Eric, if you look at my, high, my junior high yearbook, I wrote terrible things in the picture. Nerd, dweeb. Eric was an overweight dude back in the day, fat. I talked all kinds of trash about these guys because that was the cool thing to do. And the worst part was, when I would go over to their little nerdy table, they were playing with dice. They were playing role-playing games. Dungeons and Dragons, Ninjas and Super Spies, Robotech, Rifts, you name it. And I'm like, what are these funny little dice, nerd? Right? And we, oh, you stupid, look at these funky dice. We knock them off the table. And these poor guys are like, oh, you know, they just gather up their dice and endure until we got bored and we left them alone. Fast forward to 1994, no, 93, I'm now a sophomore in high school. After getting teased from the cool kids once again in high school, because I played football and I wanted to be a good football player, so maybe they respect my game, right? No, I wasn't that good, I was second string, so I got teased for that too, right? I was never cool enough, so I finally threw in the cool towel, right? Sophomore year, I'm like, I ain't cool. I'm going to be a nerd with my sister, because my sister hung out with the nerds. And I met this guy, Phil, and I'm like, oh, I used to tease this kid about his dice. And then my sister says, I saw the movie Ninja Turtles. And I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world, because I love martial arts. And Candace, my sister, says, you know, Phil loves Ninja Turtles. 
He has Ninja Turtles, all the toys and all the comic books. And I'm like, really? So I go over to Phil's house, and he lived right across the street from us. And I knock on the door, and he opens the door, and Mr. Cool, I'm like, yo, you like turtles? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I love turtles. And I'm like, man, you're so nerdy, but he brought all these toys, and he brought the comic books, and now to this day, Phil's one of my best friends. And I started playing the games with the funky dice every Saturday, like clockwork. And I met Phil's family, and we became like family. And he became one of my best friends in the world, and we played these dice games all the time, and we worked on comic books together. We wrote screenplays together. This became one of my best friends because I looked at him differently. See, my motivation, y'all ain't ready, my motivation and my fear led to my own bias and how I treated him, my own ignorance and my refusal to accept him, to accept people. My desire to be cool shut me off to whatever he was doing. Now, years later, I loved what he was doing. I couldn't wait to be a part of what he was doing. I bought all the books. I had my own dice. I had purple and gold dice for the Lakers. It was serious business. But in the beginning, my own fear about not being accepted, my own bias about what was cool or not cool, my ignorance caused me not to accept one of the people who turned out to be one of my best friends in the world. That quest for cool derailed an amazing friendship or delayed an amazing friendship. My condition made me treat him differently. So I got to ask you this one question. Is your empathy conditional? Does your bias, does your fear, does your motivation or your current situation, does it change the way you look at other people? Maybe it's not fear. Maybe it's just how you see yourself. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's ego. Whatever it is, is your empathy conditional? When you hear about someone that's suffering on the other side of the world, you say, hmm, that's terrible. Their problem. Or right now, Hurricane Michael in the East Coast, you go, that's terrible. Never been in a hurricane. Must be bad. Is your empathy conditional? Because what I see is a whole lot of conditional empathy going on in the world right now. To the point that when I start thinking about what do I want to talk about next, I just want to grab people and shake people and say, don't you know that this affects you too? Don't you know that if you were this person, if you were in this person's shoes, if you felt this way, if you walked this walk, you would want your support. I told you a story about Phil knocking his dice off the table, calling him names. That's kind of funny, kind of silly. But what about people you don't know? Anybody know this guy? For those... I guess listening on the podcast, or maybe if you've been living under a rock for the last couple weeks, this is Mr. Kavanaugh, the new Supreme Court Justice. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about Mr. Kavanaugh. I'm not going to tell you what I think happened or what I believe or what I don't believe. But I am going to ask you this. Is your empathy conditional? Because some people identify with him. How dare they say this about him? This thing that happened so long ago, I don't want to be judged for the things that I did long ago. But then I say, let's look past him and look at her. 
Look past him and look at all the other women behind him who look disgusted. And whether, you, whether or not you believe them, let's just take him out of the equation. There are women in this country that are hurting because of things that men have done repeatedly, habitually, and we men oftentimes get away with it. Because people say things like, oh, that's just the way it is. Or boys will be boys. Or it happened a long time ago. But here's my question. If you put yourself in the woman's shoes, I guarantee you there's something that happened to you 20, 30, 15, 5, 6 years ago that still bothers you today. There's something that happened 10 years ago that breaks your heart. There's something that happened 20 years ago that still makes you cry. And so when you hear someone and they say, well, it was a long time ago, if you put yourself in that person's shoes, do you still feel like it's not a big deal? Is your empathy conditional? Next picture. You guys know who this is? They call her Permit Patty. Her real name is Allison Etel or Etel. Go ahead to the next one, son. <clears throat> if you don't remember the story, I'll tell you. There was a little black girl out in front of her apartment building selling water. I don't remember exactly what she was raising money for. I think it was for a gift for her mom or something. She was selling bottled water. Like a lemonade stand, but she bought some bottled water at Costco or whatever, and she was selling it for a dollar a bottle, trying to make money to buy something. And this woman came by and saw this little girl selling water and decided it was a good idea to call the police on this little eight-year-old girl and report her for selling water without a permit. I'm serious. You laugh, but this is happening everywhere. Another woman called cops on, on black people in San Francisco for barbecuing with charcoal instead of natural gas. It's an epidemic, but we're getting down a different road. Let's stick with her for a second. This woman, Allison Etel, Etel, whatever, I don't know how to pronounce it, is also the owner and CEO of a company called Treat Well Health. <laughs> Treat Well Health makes dog treats infused with marijuana. And when they asked her, is this business legal? She said, I don't know. I'm selling it without a permit. I haven't been caught yet. This woman literally ran a business where she sold drugs without a permit to make money, and she called the police on a little girl selling water without a permit in front of her building to buy a gift. It is stupid. But you know what the dumbest part about that story is? If this woman had taken two seconds to put herself in that little girl's shoes, she probably wouldn't have called the cops. The problem is she didn't see herself in this little girl. She saw somebody who was different from her. Her empathy was conditional. Next one. Remember her? Kim Davis, the woman who went to jail and became a champion for traditional marriage for not allowing gay couples to get married in her uh, courthouse or her government building, even though the law said that gay marriage was legal, even though it was literally her job to, to marry these people or to, to process the paperwork, she took a stand and said, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to let them get married because I believe in the sanctity of marriage. I believe in traditional marriage, the way God designed it. And Huckabee and all these other Christian politicians came out to support her. And then we find out later that Mrs. Davis has been married 
Five times. Now, whether or not you believe that gay people should be married or not doesn't matter. Whether or not you agree with Kim Davis or not, it doesn't matter. But she went through a marriage and a divorce and 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 then another marriage. And when someone else wanted to have that same experience of being married, she said, "Uh uh-uh, uh-uh. I can't because that's wrong. Because I believe in the sanctity of marriage. Her empathy was conditional. Because when she looked at them, she didn't see herself. When she looked at them, she saw the other. Last one. Remember this guy? Brock Turner, AKA the Stanford rapist, who literally sexually assaulted a woman while she was passed out drunk. And when was caught, he tried to say that she wanted it. And all these people, men, politicians, writers, talked about what a bright future he had. He was a swimmer on the Stanford swim team, and he had excellent swim times. In fact, if you Google the name Brock Turner, I challenge you to do this. It's going to say Stanford swimmer Brock Turner accused of rape. Stanford swimmer Brock Turner, yada, yada, yada. Standout swimmer Brock Turner. His accomplishments are listed before his crime. And they say, oh, don't throw the book at him. He only got, what, three months, six months? He only served three? Don't throw the book at him. Don't ruin his life. Don't ruin his life. What are we forgetting in that story? The girl, the woman who was literally raped while she was passed out. And if you read her account, which I have, it is heartbreaking. But the judge and the people who made this decision, the people who wrote these stories, the people who wanted to talk about his future didn't care about her future. The people who said he has his whole life ahead of him didn't realize that her whole life has now been altered and changed. My point tonight is that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to treat other people the way we want to be treated. But we can't successfully do that unless we can have empathy and see ourselves, yeah, come on up, see ourselves in the other person. These are examples from society. These are examples from real world, from the news, from the headlines. I could go on with many, 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 many more of these, but I think you get the point. And so I ask you that when you watch the news or when you hear a story or when you hear of someone suffering, put yourself in their shoes. Empathize with them. See things from their perspective. And above all, please do not let your empathy be conditional. Because we're not called to think the best in someone because they're like us. We're not called to identify and empathize with Brock Turner or Kavanaugh or any of these people that we just talked about. 
Paul was distraught about the potential backsliding, about the potential change in the church in Corinth because he loved them, because he had compassion for them, because he wanted them to know God the way that he knows God. And if you know God in that way, and you know how he loves you, you want him to love everyone else the same way. You want that genuine faith and that genuine community. And part of that is accountability. Paul was invested in the lives of the Corinthian church. And I and Shane and Jean and everyone in this room, I want you all to be invested in the lives of each other. To do that successfully, we have to put ourselves in each other's shoes. So when you see me and you say, Chris, how's it going? And I say, well, you know, yada, yada, yada. Sure. Think about it. If you're struggling, you have a friend that's struggling. You can't help them unless you understand them. You can't help them unless you identify with them, unless you find yourself in that person. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives as well. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. Sing one more song.